Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org slash donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you'll help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support. And thanks for listening. This Climate One podcast is sponsored by General Motors. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. I'm Greg Dalton, and today on Climate One, we're talking about powering innovation. California is leading the trend toward clean energy and away from fossil fuels that are destabilizing the weather and the economy. Prices for wind and solar electricity are dropping, and entrepreneurs are conjuring up new companies and technologies to capitalize on this power shift. They're chasing what could be the biggest business opportunity of this century. Over the next hour, we will discuss disruptive technologies, the role of government, cool startups, and new ways of powering our connected and mobile lives. Joining our live audience at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco, we're pleased to have with us four guests. David Crane is CEO of NRG Energy, a $10 billion company that operates power plants around the country. Katie Fehrenbacher is a reporter with GigaOM. Adam Lowry is co-founder and chief greenskeeper with Method Products, maker of soaps and other cleaning supplies. And Arun Majumdar is professor of mechanical engineering at Stanford, former vice president for energy at Google, and former head of the Advanced Energy Research Program at the U.S. Department of Energy. Please welcome them to Climate One. Welcome. Thanks for coming. Uh, David Crane, let's begin with you. Uh, A lot of companies seek to be loved by their customers, and Apple and Google have this deep, very emotional connection with their customers. Why don't people have the same relationship with energy companies that empower those lives and all those cool applications and technologies? Where's that disconnect? Well, I think the the answer to that question is on two levels, sort of a positive answer and a negative answer. On the positive front, it's hard to be loved when, when you're providing energy for people. We have to recognize that energy enables other human behavior that, that people are interested in. But no one wakes up in the morning and says, I can't wait to turn that light on so that I can use electricity. Uh, so on the positive side, it's hard to create a, uh, an emotional connection with what's in an enabling function. But on the sort of more negative side, the, for a variety of reasons, which I could bore you to death with, the nature of the energy system in the United States is a command and control system where for the longest time, people have had no choice of where their energy comes from. If it's on the electricity side, historically, it's a state-granted monopoly, 
And the fact about monopolies is if, if, if your customers have been given to you and no one has the right to compete, you don't really, you know, prioritize giving them what they want. But the last thing I would say, and this is one of the things that makes the world we're in so important today, is that if you're, I mean, I'm 55 years old. The, the defining events of my sort of formative years were the two oil crises of the 1970s. I know out in California there are CEOs of major corporations that are in their 20s and all that, but in the energy industry, almost every, every CEO is in their 50s or 60s. And so everyone's like me, and we grew up through our whole professional careers in the energy industry in an era of fundamental energy scarcity. And, and, and it's been an article of faith in the American energy industry that whatever we can produce, the American public will consume. So we don't, have to, we don't have to stimulate demand. We don't have to care. We just have to produce it. And uh, for a variety of reasons, the, the, the gas boom, which is itself a little bit controversial, you know, the unconventional fracking, the, the, the dramatic reduction in the cost of renewable energy, we now actually live in a world of energy abundance. And when you have abundant supply, people should be able to make decisions about where they want their energy to come from. And so... That's why the energy industry has not spent a lot of time on becoming beloved with the American consumer. Katie Fehrenbecker, what are some of the cool energy startups that are out there that might be more exciting and might, might change the way that people think about energy, make energy a little more cool and sexy? Cool energy startups. Well, one in particular, everybody already knows this isn't necessarily a startup anymore, is Tesla, obviously, an electric car company. Um, probably the sexiest company in energy. No offense to energy. As long as you did say sexiest CEO, you know, that's just... Uh, <laughs> um, yeah. Um, I've been writing about... <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. Okay, okay. <laughs> Never mind. Keep going. Um, I've been writing about energy startups for about seven years now, um, and Tesla is by far the biggest draw. Um, and then there's these other companies, uh, internet companies that are moving into the energy space kind of on the fringes. So Google buying Nest last year for, or was it earlier this year, for $3.2 billion. You know, now Google has these energy assets and, you know, Apple building solar energy um, in North Carolina, um, largest privately owned solar um, farm in the U.S., I think it is. So some of these kind of bigger, cooler brands are paying a lot more attention to it. Arun Madhumdar, what do you think are some of the areas that the big innovations, what, what are some areas we think to be where innovation coming out of the university or government could be really exciting and really change the way the U U.S. powers its economy? How much time do you have? <laughs> I think there's a lot of stuff coming along. I was very fortunate to be at RPE and starting up RPE with my team out there, and some of the members are here. So that's the U.S. Department of Energy's advanced research that's right, program. That's right. And we got to see, you know, people throwing ideas at, uh, at us. And the best news story is that there's a tremendous capacity for the United States to innovate in te technology. And this is what we are focusing on. So things like storage. Storage, I think, is a game changer, uh, especially if you're transitioning to renewable uh, sources, which are intermittent. Um, and if you could get storage out there at low cost, the cost is very important, um, I think that will be a game changer. And I think we saw several of these technologies that we invest in early stages. The private sector then picked it up. And they are now, many of these are now, you know, uh, piloting some of these technologies overseas, frankly, because the need for storage overseas 
many times is higher than out here because it's unreliable electricity. But they will eventually be used out here. So I think that's one of the big uh, areas, not just for electricity, but for transportation. We were talking about Tesla. If the battery costs come down by a factor of two or three, which could happen in the next you know, 10 years or so, this is going to be a game changer. Then you'll have, you won't have the range anxiety because you can afford to put more batteries in there. So storage, I think, is, is a big game changer. And one thing that is often lost is heat storage. Uh, and it's much cheaper than electric, uh, electricity storage. If you're trying to do combine heat and power, massive opportunities are there as well. I think the other part is that, and um, I think uh, David has alluded to in the past as well, our electricity system is, is in transition. And how that system evolves uh, from what it is today to something which is much more automated, um, where you don't have people making phone calls, but it happens. Um, and that's going to be, I think there's a tremendous need for technology and there's room for innovation out there. So I think those are the areas that, we, that we're going to see. So if you were remaking The Graduate in the 60s, rather than plastics, you would say storage to Dustin Hoffman I'd while be... he's floating in the pool. <laughs> well, as far as plastics, I think my dear friend so, is going to talk about soap. I think soap, soap is the answer. Soap soap is the answer. Yeah, I'm soap. thinking soap, too. Yeah. <laughs> Adam Lowry, you're kind of, you're, you use energy. You're trying to rethink uh, and uh, redesign the way uh, corporations use plastic. You've made soap sexy, which, I'm not, which is quite a feat. Uh, to do that, Thank but you. let's have your take on this sort of as as an innovative disruptor in an industry trying to change it and, and move it in a new direction. Yeah, I, th- I think it's probably worth noting to begin with, I'm, I'm the only person on the panel that isn't explicitly in the energy world, mm-hmm. um, but uh, I do operate in probably, there's probably only one industry that moves slower than the soap business, and that's the energy business. Oh. <laughs> so, <laughs> so at least maybe that we have in common, but the role that uh, my business is really dominated by very large international, you know, $90 billion companies and things like that, really huge companies that don't move particularly quickly. And as an upstart within this business that's now big enough to, that at least we're established, really the role we play is we're an innovator and a challenger brand. And what that allows us to do is actually catalyze our competitor, competitors to actually follow our lead on a lot of things. And so we do that with the way that we use plastics and materials and take toxic stuff out of uh, cleaning products. But uh, we're now actually starting to get into uh, the, the energy business as a uh, we're, we're building a factory in, this, in the city of Chicago that's going to uh, generate its own power. And so we're building utility-scale wind, lots of solar. And so it's been an interesting experience from that side of of the business to go through what it takes to actually try to generate your own power, um, which has been a very interesting experience. Illinois is coal country. Any coal going into that uh, uh, factory? Well, it's grid-connected or will be grid-connected. It's it's being built right now, and it'll be open in uh, late December. But uh, it'll be grid-connected, but we've got nearly a megawatt of uh, capacity, mostly in in, a, in one utility-scale windmill and a bunch of solar that will, for a long time, produce all the power we need. Um, so. David Crane, let's talk about coal. Coal is, has been the primary source of electricity in the United States. It still is in China many places. It's the number one climate killer. Uh, what's the future of coal? 
Well, um, I'm glad you asked that question. The, uh, I, and, and let me start by saying I, w- I would have a gentle disagreement with Arun a, a as to what's the key. My Dustin Hoffman in the pool moment would be uh, capture carbon. Because whether we like it or not, we're in a period where we have to go uh, uh, negative carbon. We have to take carbon out of the atmosphere at this point, given where we are. And, uh, and so if you can solve for that problem, if, which is an engineering problem, you'll, you'll be a billionaire. Which, and I know there are a lot of billionaires out here, so that doesn't impress people in the Bay Area. But in the, let me tell you, in the rest of the country, say you could be a billionaire. When you talk to an engineering student in Rochester, New York, you say billionaire, and, you know, it, it works. But uh, um, so the future of coal, and, and, and I, I would say, and look, I, I expect there to be a significant amount of disagreement with me on this. I, I think that if you think about the United States as two parallel energy delivery systems, one that sort of starts with, which is all oil and goes through refineries and and basically into the gasoline of your your vehicle, and then the other what's turned into electricity and goes into the stationary environment, the fundamental advantage we have is that we're not monofuel. We're not dependent on, on, on oil and coal, natural gas, nuclear, wind, solar, we are a stronger country if we use all those fuels. So I fundamentally believe that coal should be part of the equation going forward in this country. Having said that, my goal, and I, you know, for full disclosure for people that don't know our company, we own many coal plants. I don't want to put carbon in the atmosphere. I want to use coal to make electricity. I just don't want to put carbon in the atmosphere. So last week we actually broke ground on what will be the largest post-combustion carbon capture project in the world, a billion-dollar project in Texas, which will capture 1.6 million tons of carbon from the exhaust gas from the coal plant. Um, so we need post-combustion carbon capture. You cannot solve the problem of climate change without affordable post-combustion carbon capture because, because of this natural gas revolution, you could actually envision a United States 30 years from now that has no operating coal plants, but you cannot envision a China or an India that does not have operating coal plants. And the average age of a coal plant in the United States right now is 40 years old. And whatever the EPA does, the, you know, plants live for about 60 years. So they're on the way out. The average age of a coal plant in China is six years old. And so um, the best thing that the, if, if you gave me one wish, I would say that the United States deployed post-combustion carbon capture technology at a price that the Chinese would adopt and make part of their system. This is basically a sort of a cigarette filter put onto the smokestack of coal plants to suck out the carbon. It's very expensive. Billions of dollars have been thrown at it. Some people think it's pie in the sky and will never happen. Yeah, well, I, I absolutely fundamentally don't uh, agree with that. And I'll go out on a limb and I'll say the technology that's going to prove that to be wrong is being developed right here in the Bay Area as we speak. Arun Majumdar, how realistic is that? <laughs> well, let me just add to that. Let me explain the severity of the problem. It's actually worse than that. I thought it was the, pretty much a okay. downer. Though. <laughs> Good, take oh, us down this, further. That's right. no, no, no. Let, let, let me explain. Katie, you're going to have to bring us this back goes here. Back, this goes back to the Industrial Revolution. So if you, if you look at the lifetime of a CO2 molecule in the atmosphere, it's a few hundred years, which means that the CO2 molecule that were emitted during the times of what, in a Watt steam engine are still there. And so the rate of emissions, the rate of emissions is going up linearly. 
the way we are going, India, China, United States, or Brazil, and all. So if you all combine the global, it's going up linearly. And we're just emitting the CO2, and it's like a big capacitor. So if the rate is going up like this, the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere is going up nonlinearly. So even if you do all the renewables today and flatten the emission rate, that means if you flatten it, that, that means next year we're going to emit the same as this year, which is not true today. We're emitting more and more as we go along. Even if you flatten it, the amount of CO2 still goes up linearly. And that is a huge, huge problem. So in addition to, so this is necessary, CO2 capture, absolutely necessary. But it's not sufficient to really address climate change because at some point you've got to scrub the atmosphere. Yeah. And, and we really don't have the science and the engineering to do it in a cost-effective way. And we really need to invest in this R&D to really get that done. So how far are we away? Uh, uh, many companies have pilot projects. Shell has a program up in the, in the tar sands of Canada. Uh, Arun Madhumdar, how close are we today to having carbon capture, these filters on coal plants that are economical today that can be deployed to start bending those carbon curves? Well, I mean, there's a business side to it, and, and David can explain that way better than I can. But if the cost of carbon capture is lower than the price of carbon, CO2, then you have a business. And a few years ago, this used to be $80, $90 a ton for a coal-fired power plant. I don't know what it is today. You may have the numbers better. But the price of CO2 depends, like for example, for enhanced oil recovery, it depends on where you are. It's roughly in the order of $30, $40 you know, a ton of CO2 that people would pay to do enhanced oil recovery. Um, that numbers may have changed. I don't know what the numbers are in your okay. planting. David, David Crane, are we close to? Yeah, it all depends yeah. on having a price on carbon, which we don't. Well, so yeah. So I mean, because that's. I mean, people have to understand that the carbon capture problem is a is a two. It has two critically important parts of it. Is you know you have to capture the carbon at an affordable price, and we would say based on current technology, that's about forty to fifty dollars a ton. Uh, but the second thing is, then you have to figure out what to do with the carbon. And as long as there's no price on carbon, the capitalist system, and you know, I'm, as, I'm sure I'm as big a capitalist as anyone in this room, the capitalist system will not solve for something that does not have a price on it. So right now, the only way you can use captured car, carbon at volume, and you can only do this in certain locations, is to turn it into oil, you know, through carbon flooding of oil fields, which I think it's a good thing, but it, you know, it has its own environmental uh, consequences. So. The second part of the solution is turning carbon, either putting a price on carbon or turning carbon into something that society can use. You know, a general area which at least you would know, but is that the area that's called materialization? Can we embed carbon in building materials and road materials and things like that or put it in, capture it in a way that it just doesn't go in the atmosphere, but it has a price that the capital system there was a company called Calera a while ago mm. to put uh, exactly. carbon into cement, carbon into this or that. A lot of those companies are very exciting for a little while. Then they go away. You don't hear about them so well, much. Uh, if, let's get Carrie Fehrenbacher of these, about, yeah. on this in terms of these companies have great promise, and yet they have trouble getting to scale, getting to market, panning out in the real world. They looked great in the lab or the bathtub. Not so great out in the real world. Right. Well, sometimes it's the technology, right, going from the lab to commercial scale, but sometimes it's the financing also. Um, you know, there was the startup who moved to China who's now commercializing its technology in China. Their name escapes me right now. Um, yes, yeah, but, like, there's um, 
there's there's a lots of issues on the road from those little startups to get to commercialization. Um, I mean, you guys are using internal, internally built technology for carbon capture. Uh, it's no, it's it's uh, Japanese technology that comes out of the chemical industry. You mean for the the actual right. capture process? Right. Yeah, it's a Mitsubishi heavy technology. Let's pick up on that in terms of what's the role of the U.S. government here. A lot of these technologies maybe developed overseas. Arun Majumdar, is there a role for the United States government to push more on these technologies because we might lose an edge to China or India or Japan? Absolutely. What's the role of the government has been a perennial question in Washington, right? <laughs> and, but I think there's universally there's agreement um, that in terms of research, the R&D, uh, where it is too risky for the private industry to initiate, not to pick up later on, it is absolutely critical. Just to give you an idea, if I develop a new technology today, for it to be fully scaled in the industry for industrial use, it can take anywhere from 10 to 20 years. Um, and you know, if I, take a, if I come up with a new battery chemistry today, and I, if I want Tesla to adopt it, it's going to take longer than how it, whether I can write a software and get it out on the internet. It takes longer. And so for that length of time, you know, sometimes the industry is not uh, willing to take the risk. And so the government has to play the role of the early stage, uh, not just going down existing learning curves and make lithium-ion batteries safer or some other carbon capture using uh, a means better and better to make it cheaper, but also the disruptive technologies the disruptive ones that could be even more, even cheaper than what the today's technology and better than today's technology. So that's really the goal, role of the government in the R&D. Then the question is what happens on the other side, on the policy side, whether there should be a carbon price and all, and that's where the controversy really starts. But I think in the R&D, there's general agreement that that's where the government has to play a role. David Crane, uh, everyone likes R&D, uh, but the question is whether uh, taxpayers are willing to accept some risks so Solyndra didn't turn out so well, uh, although that overall loan program did pretty well for the government. Some would say better than some, some venture capitalists. The government did some better than some VC funds in that. But uh, taxpayers don't like to, to invest in companies that go bust. Well, I mean, I don't know how taxpayers feel about it, but certainly the political opposition of the day likes to make a big deal of it. And, you know, we, our company is the single biggest recipient of the Department of Energy Loan Guarantee Program. And you're right that, that for all of you taxpayers out there, your money is safe with us because uh, <laughs> all of our loans will perform. Um, but how much have you paid back? Um, very little because the, the plants, you know, because of the lead time of plants, you know, the money that was dispensed in, you know, 2009, 2010, the plants are just being finished. We just finished our solar, a $6 billion solar building program, most of which is all completely enabled. I mean, the Department of Energy loans have helped, but thankfully the state of California with your uh, renewable portfolio standard is really the driving force. But, but I, I would say that, I mean, if you dealt with the Department of Energy and, and a journalist, I think, coined this phrase, Kay, I don't think it was you, that, that solyndrophobia. I mean, the minute the, the, Solyndra, the, minute the yeah. Department of Energy started getting beat overhead over what happened with Solyndra, it froze. And, and, and you just couldn't get any, you know, it became very painful to deal with the DOE with the projects. Having said that, our carbon capture project that I just mentioned, it's a billion-dollar project, but it's enabled very significantly by a $170 million grant from the DOE. 
It leaves $830 million for the private sector, which has its, had its own challenges. But so the DOE is trying, but but the government in this current, you know, sort of toxic environment in Washington, it's it's very hard to work with people where if they fail, they know they're going to be in front of, you know, Daryl Issa's committee, you know, sort of, you know, uh, being accused of things for the for the next uh you know, uh, three years. So, so people get scared, and you got to lose your fear of failure if you're if we're going to solve this problem because not everything we try is going to work. I feel like it's gotten a little bit better too in the last year. The DOE. Well, just the entire politicization of the green really? issue. You don't think so? Maybe not from your perspective. <laughs> Maybe Elaborate. from a uh, Silicon Valley perspective. <laughs> okay. So I feel like the ghost of Slindra has gone away. Can I explain the Everyone difference? Imagine that? Yeah. So let me explain this. Solendra, which is part of the loan guarantee program that you were referring to, is a late-stage investment, a loan by the government. There's, there's a difference between something which is low-risk, low-technology risk that is, is ready for deployment, as opposed to R&D, where the research money, which is not on the order of hundreds of million dollars, but a, in a million dollars, sometimes even less, for research to invest in students and postdocs in the universities or staff scientists in startup companies and large companies in the R&D to do the research. And I think it will be a huge mistake for the United States to mess with that because that is the engine. It's like uh, Norm Augustine once said, that if you're trying to fly a plane, don't, don't remove the engine because that is the engine. If you're trying to lightweight a plane, don't remove the engine. And I think that that's where we need to sort of separate out the two in terms of loan guarantees versus R&D. And isn't it true that uh, the United States put a few billion dollars, say, into the solar sector, and China put in $50 billion, right? So they put in 10x to that, and they've essentially cornered the global market now on, on solar panels. So, Arun Dar, what's the risk of the U.S. losing out to some of these state-run economies that can uh, put more money into these new technologies and have more of an appetite for risk and less, less political messing around? Well, I think, you know, if you look at the Chinese investments, yes, they've invested a lot of money. I would say that they have not been always the most thoughtful ones. And some of them, of course, you, you luck out. And, in fact, the Chinese solar industry also went through some really tough times as well. It's just the global market went away. And there was a glut because of what's happened in Germany, in Spain, etc. So I think, you know, uh, I would really like to see the markets play. Um, the government has a role to play in the late stage. Um, if you are, you know, building a first-of-a-kind, you know, carbon capture plant or, a, for example, a nuclear plant after 30 years, the government has to play some role in it. But at some point, the market has to play a role. And I think it's important for creating the policies for not just private capital but public capital to come into the market so that, you know, there's, there's, you know, there are market forces at play. If you're just joining us, Arun Majumdar is professor of mechanical engineering at Stanford. Our other guest here today at Climate One, Adam Lowry, co-founder and chief greenskeeper at Method Products, David Crane, CEO of NRG Energy, and Katie Fehrenbacher, reporter for GigaUM. I'm Greg Dalton. Adam Lowry, let's get you in on here on, on innovation. Does it always require government subsidy? I don't know if you've received any government subsidies or not. To try <laughs> not to, a uh, penny. Just okay. <laughs> so it's not always required. It probably helps. Do, um, 
Yeah, certainly I agree with the points that are made on on the the core need for research and the role that government can play there. I think that there are also ways of, of innovating from the other side, of course, and we see that in, in all sorts of sectors. And uh, certainly with our business, we're trying to do that around, you know, I, I used to very much be in the climate change world. I was a, I was a, a climate scientist 15 years ago and uh, helped to develop models that helped us understand what, what's really going on. And one of the reasons that I became an entrepreneur is because I wanted to get all of that, all, all of the people in society that aren't particularly informed or concerned about climate change in the movement somehow. And so what we chose to do with our business method was to really try to make relevant to a mainstream audience a product that's very mundane, a bathroom cleaner, or a bottle of dish soap. Um, make it, as you said, a little bit sexier than it had been, um, but really build uh, from all of the elements of its sustainability, whether that's the energy that it was used to produce it or the chemistry that's in it or what the bottle's made out of, um, as, as just part of the quality of that product so that people could just love it for what it was. They could love it if it was purple and they had a purple bathroom or because it, they loved the fragrance which alone would be something that would just be uh, perhaps uh, shallow. But combined with uh, a deep, sustainable sensibility in the product design um, and all the innovation that's required to get that done starts to get more and more people that are on the spectrum between don't care at all and mildly concerned about climate change. Um, maybe not to think about climate change, but just in, in their daily lives to start to integrate this. And uh, the reason that we chose to do it in the consumer sector is for a lot of the reasons that David highlighted, which is there is tremendous power that comes through. Uh, we're, we're one of the smallest brands in the cleaning business, but uh, our brand carries a lot of weight. And with that, uh, we can carry a message both for our consumers that buy our products as well as for our competitors that we compete against and uh, the way that we try to hold their kind of status quo-ness against them in the market. David Crane, speaking about the role of businesses and business leaders, you wrote a letter to shareholders that was quite emotional, quite different than most CEO letters. Tell us what the letter said and why you wrote it and what you hoped that it would impact would be. Well, is it, <laughs> if you get, I mean, I've been a CEO for, of a public company for 11 years, and there's this formula that goes into the shareholder letter that's part of the SEC filing, which is, you know, you sort of talk a bit about all the great things that your company did over the last 12 months. You try and sort of gloss over the, the, any stumbles you had, unless it was such a bad stumble that you have to address it head on. And then you sort, of, you, you sort of say, you know, I'm completely, myself, the management team, all the employees at the company are completely aligned with your interests, and, and we're going to have a great year next year. It's probably then, an algorithm that writes those letters. <laughs> that's right. right. I don't know where the first drafts come from, but every year it sounds the same. And then I look at it, and, you know, after 10 years, I'm uh, and, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm not the first to try and actually use the letter for a greater purpose. I think Jeff... Bezos said, I think, that his 1998 letter at Amazon where he said, look, our shareholders deserve to know where we stand as a company. And, uh, and so we had the idea that, you know, we should talk about where NRG stands. And if, if there's one thing that you remember 
about my view of the world right now is, uh, you know, it, it's time to take a stand right now on this issue, whether you're a, a, a public corporation, for-profit, a not-for-profit, a member, you know, a thought leader in society. The time is now. You know, the science is, is beyond dispute. Um, the excuse that we don't have the technology is just not true anymore. Uh, we have the technology. And across the business world, and you maybe think, I think, we are starting to see a series of leaders in very large companies, much more powerful than ours, than mine, that really believe this, not only because they want to position their company in a particular place, but that this is what they want their personal legacy to be, is a commitment to sustainability. And um, for me, I mean, that's sort of how I feel. So I wrote the letter, and I... Uh, and I, I said, and I was really, because the employees read the letter more than your shareholders, I was really trying to motivate the 10,500 people that work at Energy is that, yeah, you know, we're trying to make money, all that, but we're, we're basically trying to, you know, save the world. I mean, what does Energy stand for? Yeah, we want to save the world. Who wants to come to work and save the world? And... Uh, um, Versus be part of the problem, which yeah. both companies Yeah, well, bring. that's the thing. I mean, if you ask me the electricity industry in the context of climate change, I would say in, you know, elevator speech, we are currently the biggest part of the problem, but we are an even bigger part of the solution. Because if electricity can make itself zero carbon, then we can turn and solve the transportation industry, and we can solve the industry industry. And then all we need is someone doing agriculture and deforestation, and we're done. Uh, and... Uh, <laughs> And, uh, simple as that. Yeah, it's a simple formula. So, you know, I wanted to position us as a leader. But the other aspect, the part that gets emotional as a father of five and, and you know, wrote another letter today to university students is uh, this is very much an intergenerational issue. And when I think about my generation of American leadership and sort of say, did we solve the, the defining issue of our time the way virtually every other American generation succeeded at the defining issue of their time, and I would say we haven't done that. We not only haven't done we haven't actually made a good start on it so that the next generation, you know, uh, can solve the issue. And so, you know, part of it is to say, look, Americans will spend an endless amount of money to educate their children. The best education that money can buy, if Americans can afford it, they'll send their kids to the school but, you know, when it comes to, well, don't, if you care about your child's education so that 30 years from now your child has a great life, don't you think we should equally be a steward of what the world's going to be like, you know, in the year 2050? So I, the letter tried to frame it as, like, we owe our children this. And to try and, like, make it resonate with what I, I'm assuming that I'm going to feel like when I'm sort of sitting there in my, you know, uh, you know in, my, in my declining years. And, you know, when my children come to you and say, you know, Dad, you were in a position to do something and you didn't do anything. You know, why? And, uh, the day of reckoning. How many other CEOs, what's been the response? Any other CEOs at the golf club say, yeah, David, you shouldn't have written that, you know? Well, I've actually been shocked. And maybe, and this is always, of course, a problem that the environmental movement has, is that we all just talk to each other. And, and uh, CEOs who are really on the progressive side of this issue tend to talk to each other. And I've been surprised at the number of CEOs that have read it and say, you know, I really, you know, your letter really resonated with me because I've never read the annual shareholder letter of any other company. Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, because I know the formula and I, I could recite it without uh, <laughs> anyway. But so so but no, so it had a very good impact. I mean, it had the desired 
you know, impact. But do investors care? Wall Street just wants quarterly earnings, compounded quarterly earnings. That's nice. Um, I've had uh, Dan Hesse, former chairman of Sprint here. He would bring up green sustainability on analyst calls. They don't give a hoot. They just want to know the number. Well, I mean, I, I actually think in my – and I, I, I was saying to you earlier, I've probably in my 10 years done a 1,000 investor meetings. And you're right to a certain degree. But, but one of the things interesting happened in investor relations after the financial crisis of 2009, which was if you have good news about the company's future, investors want to know that you're going to realize on that good news within the next three months or else they're not going to give you any value for it. If you have potential bad news – they don't care if it's 40 years in the future. They're going to abuse you about it. So actually, for the most part, as a company that uh, you know, makes a lot of electricity and emits a lot of carbon associated with this, investors are concerned about the risk, but not from some sort of you know, social virtue point of view, but from a, well, you know, you're going to get shut down or you're going to have to spend so much money on, on the back end of your coal plants that I've got to assume that you're going to spend, you know, $5 billion, and we have to work that into the model. So, so I actually have gotten a fair amount of support from our, our big investors for tacking this way. Sometimes they think I overdo it, and then I have to, you know, sort of calm down a little bit. But, uh, but for the most part, the investors do see it in dollar and cents terms. But the most important thing is that they see that the societal trend is towards going green. And companies that try and sort of stand and stop societal trends get swamped. So, you know, you better get, you know, you better get on the bus or the bus is going to run you over. I think it's also really important just to speak their language. Uh, I think a couple examples from, from the method business, you know, two very brief examples. We use um, some secondary biodiesel to do uh, shipping of our products, which is actually the largest part of our carbon footprint. And that's actually cheaper than, than regular diesel, and we save money on that. And uh, that was an investment we had to make, but we now, it's, it, we now save money on every gallon of diesel. And so that's real easy, right? You save money, sustainable, you know, go for it. Um, but another interesting example is we make all of our bottles out of 100% post-consumer material instead of virgin plastic. And in 2011, when we saw a real big spike in oil prices, not surprisingly, recycled plastic, uh, doesn't have nearly the carbon footprint of a virgin plastic. And while it still remained more expensive, um, it, the, the cost curves almost crossed. And so we were able to demonstrate to our investors, hey, we are insulating ourselves against commodity cost risk in a business that doesn't, you know, the soap business, there's not a lot of margin in. So all soap businesses are very exposed to commodity cost risk. And so if you can frame it in those ways, uh, it, I, I, I think it, it's a much easier sell than, than trying to say, even though it may be motivating to the employees that you're saving the world or whatever it is that motivates them, um, you just have to speak their language. Let's talk a little bit about uh, uh, solar panels and electric cars, that, which are some of the most accessible way that individuals and consumers can, can get on this. Uh, Arun Majumdar, tell us about the slope of the price curve for, for solar and where, where that's going and, and how that might impact uh, adoption of solar technology, rooftop solar in particular. Well, before I do that, can I just say that I hope every CEO in this country has the same conviction <laughs> that David has and not just conviction, but the guts to actually say and, uh, and really put, the, put your reputation on the line. So we really appreciate what you're doing, David. Thank you. Yeah. 
And, you know, you're absolutely right. This is a transgenerational issue. It takes time. And I can, you know, I have two, two daughters who are in their, you know, one is 18, the other is 21. And I remember when, we were, when they were growing up, if I was a minute late in putting my seatbelt, they would, you know, they would ding me. <laughs> and I think that, I don't think that was the case 30 years ago. And it's really important to bring the younger generation uh, into this mix. And the good news, which is not often talked about, is that every university around the country, and I've gone to many places while I was in Washington, I used to take a trip to the south all over the country and, and spend an hour with the students. And every, almost every university has an energy club or a sustainability club, whatever they call it. Mm. And they have a club of clubs. And that's one of the most positive things that has happened around this country. And, in fact, in RPE, we used to have an annual summit. We used to make a point to figure out, to raise money to bring these students into Washington and to attend the summit to see what's going on so that they would go and educate their you know, peers and friends that this is what's going on in Washington and around the country. So I just want to make that point that it's really important that we get the people involved in this, and the, especially the younger generation. Can you ask me something about cost but, but let's, stay, let's stay on this. The, uh, um, you know, do they feel betrayed by the baby boom generation, which was going to change the world and being peace in the 60s and ended up kind of trashing the planet? I don't think, frankly, from what I have interacted with them, I don't think they really care. What they really care about is that can we solve this problem and can we do something about it? And I'm not sure how much I, I hope my kids don't find out what I was doing in the 1670s. <laughs> uh, I really hope so. But I, 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 I think they care about what's going to be in the future. And I think that's the most important thing. Um, and and they, they do care about how, how to get others engaged. And they realize it's a global issue. It's not just the United States issue. And I think you can get kids really excited about the fact that they can leave a legacy and leave a dent in this universe as Steve Jobs used to say, by doing something about not just for the United States, for, but for the rest of the world, because there are one and a half billion people who don't have access to electricity today. And there's another one and a half billion who have marginal access to electricity. Now, do you really want them to get electricity from the Tesla Edison grid that we have out here? Or should they leapfrog and really get clean electricity? And I think that's an opportunity that I find the kids really excited about. Katie Fehrenbacher, yes. the, the, this intergenerational issue, I don't know if you're the youngest person up here, maybe. Um, <laughs> look at her look, yeah. You know how they're not looking at you, all right? <laughs> yeah, it's like, yeah, it's, it's, I'm uh, looking there. I know it's not me, Katie. Yeah. Uh, in terms of that perspective on a room, we was just saying in terms of the, seeing the opportunity, not worrying so much about blame, but let's just get on with this. This is our future. We can build it. Oh, I completely agree. Um, and even in the startup entrepreneur Silicon Valley world, um, you see a lot of the youngest entrepreneurs really excited about trying to change the energy space. Um, it's an extremely difficult area to launch a company and a startup in, but it's some of these just kind of fresh out of school kids who are really excited about, you know, if they're in the science space, trying to build new types of batteries, or, you know, if they're in the internet, social media space, trying to build more sustainable brands. Um, I completely agree. And I think um, your letter is particularly interesting, kind of acknowledging from just a branding perspective that energy companies should create these sustainable brands. You know, and, and your student letter and your um, investor letter really are 
recruiting tools for the next generation. So it is a smart business strategy, I think. Let's talk a little bit about, uh, before we go to audience questions, your own personal carbon footprint. Uh, David Crane, does your private jet fly on biofuels? Or, um, you know, let's talk about sort of what you're each doing in your own life so that uh, for your carbon footprint. You know, it's a very interesting question, and I've got colleagues out here that are going to cringe at my answer, so I just get prepared. But, um, you know, my view, and I, I think the first time I heard sort of like taking a climate activist personal lifestyle and sort of, you know, criticizing them for not practicing what they preached was when people started criticizing Al Gore for the fact that he had a big house in Tennessee and he used a lot of electricity <clears throat> and all that stuff. And, you know, and my view is like, look, there are very few people on this earth that have the right to throw stones when it comes to their personal uh, behavior because we're all using electricity and, and you can buy renewable energy and that's great. But one way or another in society right now, the way it's set up, you're benefiting from fossil fuels. You'd have to be a hermit in a cave in the United States to not be benefiting from fossil fuels. So why don't we get past that issue? You know, my view as a company is that we, we're trying to do sustainable things and sort of focus on our employees' lifestyle, carbon, and all. But when you're emitting 70 million tons of carbon a year out of your smokestacks, as, as NRG has been for a long period of time, our biggest issue is... Uh, you know, yeah, okay, bike to work, but let's figure out how we stop emitting 70 million tons of carbon. You know, that's the biggest thing that our company can do and that I can do as a society. But I will say for the record that NRG does not have a corporate plane. Uh, you know, my, my corporate plane is, you know, row 36 on, on United Airlines. Kenny Fehrenbacher, what are you doing personally on sustainability? Uh, in my personal life, I think I'm pretty good. I don't think it's necessarily because I've made a lot of sustainable choices, but just that I'm an urban living person. Mm -hmm. I live in an apartment. I don't own a car. Um, I bike to work because it, my office happens to be within 15 minutes. Um, and I think more and more people are going vegetarian. So my footprint is pretty good. I think flying is my worst trait for sure. Are you well, this is, I get dinged by my kids again on this because, uh, you know, if I leave the lights on for a little while, my kids tell me, hey, you're supposed to be the energy guy. What the heck are you keeping the lights on? <laughs> so, but, you know, so one of the things we did in our home, we, we have a house in Orenda, which is right across in the other side of the hills. We painted our roof white. Yeah. And um, we call it the White House. <laughs> <laughs> And the, the interesting thing, I mean, there's, there's a lot of carbon implications of that, but it, frankly, it's just cooler. So in the heat of summer, we don't have to turn on an AC. And that turned out to be a, a great thing. So simple, yeah. right? It doesn't, it can't cost very much, and yet somehow we're attached to the look or the convention of these tar and gravel roofs. Adam Lowry, you're a sailor. What else do you do to uh, lead a um, clean lifestyle? Well, I, I probably fit all of the disgusting Northern California stereotypes. So um, <laughs> I've, I've got a house with solar panels on the roof and I have an electric car and that I don't drive very much because I bike to work and uh, eat mostly vegetarian and all of the things that um, are popular in Northern California. But it, I, I think more importantly, I, you know, I think it's important to take the opportunity to say that uh, the most powerful changes are the things that people choose to do in their own lives. And the choices that I personally have made in my own life are, are, don't matter. Um, it, what matters is what each individual is going to do in, in the choices that they're making that are the things that just become normal within their daily lives. 
Um, and those are different for, for every type of person all throughout the country, all throughout the world. And uh, I think that we'll have succeeded when we get to a place where it becomes normal but and not the exception to do things like, you know, some of the things that have been mentioned here. Generation ago, we threw a lot. Of, it was common to throw trash out the window driving down the highway until mm. that famous ad with the Indian and the tear, and that mm. became socially anathema. And mm. now we weren't wearing seatbelts either. And now most people don't think about doing that. There's a financial cost to doing so, and that became a, a new social norm. The way that some of these other things are becoming gradually starting here in San Francisco with lifestyle, et cetera. Culture is very powerful in support of policy. We're talking about energy empowering the American economy today at Climate One. Our guests are David Crane, CEO of NRG Energy, Katie Fehrenbacher, reporter with GigaOM, Adam Lowry with Method Products, and Arun Majumdar, professor of mechanical engineering at Stanford. I'm Greg Dalton. Let's have our first audience question. Welcome. Thank you. And this is for David. David, what place of heart do you tap into for that emotional strength and moral imagination to do things that will be unimaginable for other Fortune 250 CEOs? And how difficult was your coming out journey like? And how do you see and what can we do as a society to help other CEOs to come out of the closet too? You didn't know you were going to come out in San Francisco, did you? <laughs> no. No. Although it's interesting, I mean, and th this is not an answer to your question, but since you use sort of, you know, sort of being gay, like I have a son who, my oldest son is is, is gay, and he, I, I just have to brag on him, he, he became the first openly gay person to climb the seven summits. And, uh, and so I could say, you know, it's for him and my other four uh, children, but what, what, one of the things that I actually sticking with the gay theme for a second, one of the things I find very interesting, and you may not notice this in Northern California, is what's happened in the gay marriage movement over the last 10 years is what we need to have happen in climate change. If you think about the, you know, it's, it's widely believed that John Kerry lost the 2004 election because he refused to uh, come out against gay marriage, and he lost Ohio in 2004 because of it, and he lost Ohio, he lost the election. Um, and in 10 years' time, gay marriage has been has expanded from being supported by innovators and early adopters to being s supported by what, during the Vietnam War, we used to call the silent majority. That That's the exact same thing we have to have. What we need to do is we got the 15% of the population. There's 15% of the population that will never get the laggards. We have to win the silent majority. And if I could figure out how in 10 years' time the gay marriage movement uh, caught, you know, middle America, then we would win this climate change thing. So I think about that all the time. To your question, it's no personal courage at all from my perspective. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, an, I'm an American Fortune 250 CEO. I'm paid a lot of money. The worst thing that could happen to me is that they fire me, and if they fired me, they would have to pay me even more money. <laughs> so... Uh, so so there's no personal courage in this at all on my part. I'm just calling them like I see them. And, and you know, I wish there were other parts of society. I wish, I wish the financial institutions would get in, in there. But, you know, they don't want to antagonize their people on the other side of this issue. But every day there are less and less people in the corporate world on the other side of this issue. And I think two, two things happened in April of this year 
that were not given a lot of significance, I think, in the corporate world were very important on this issue. One, ExxonMobil finally came out and said, it's happening, it's caused by humans, and the time to do something about it is now. And, in, you know, those words from any other normal person would have been, you know, just, you know, obvious. But coming from ExxonMobil, that was huge. The second thing was Amazon was picketed because they had the audacity to use system grid-based power in their data centers, unlike, you know, Google, Facebook, Apple, who are trying to create all green data centers. Amazon is just like, man, you know, I just want a data center. I'm going to buy power from the grid. And people got antagonized by that. And to me, that set the marker that if you want to be a leader in the 21st century, you've got to do better than just what's average. You, you've got to be you know, truly green. And I think those two events had a ripple effect. And I actually think corporate America, maybe for the first time in history, can be a leader in this social movement. And it will be by choice, and it won't take all that much courage because it's the right thing for the people we serve. Sorry, no short. David Crane, answer. CEO of Energy Energy. I actually think there's a little more courage in there to go outside the tribe, to stretch a little further, the, 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 the club. You're, you are on the leading edge of that. I don't know if you've been in any CEO cocktail parties, but they're really boring. So the fact, <laughs> the, the, the fact that I don't get invited to them anymore is not... Uh... <laughs> Let's have our next audience question. Welcome to Climate One. Thank you. My question is, you mentioned, for example, the youth and the new generations, the new generations and all these things. But the people in Congress are not young now, and they stay there for 50 years. And the U.S. is the only country in the world that hasn't ratified the Kyoto Protocol. Many of you mentioned China because you see China as the most polluting, but actually the U.S. is the most polluting in the world per capita. So is it time to use safe nuclear, or when is the time when you're going to have fracking without harming pollutants, or would you just focus on solar or something else. David Crane, you know some politicians. What do you think about policy leadership, a breakthrough in Washington? Well, this is where, and I'm a real pessimist about public policy, on, certainly on the national level, states and municipalities will lead. But, I mean, you know, this is where the, the gay rights movement, again, I think, provides us a marker. Right now, it's one middle America, but if you tried to pass anything, through Congress that sort of was supportive of gay rights, you'd get nowhere uh, because it would never get out of the House of Representatives. And, I, and, and that's sort of how I feel. We can't rely on the politicians in Washington to solve this problem. It's got to be bottoms up. It, you know, Arun said we need a movement, a, a youth-led movement. It, the, the, the politicians will lead from behind on this, certainly at the federal uh, level, um, and I, I should say, let me just answer the nuclear power question, because if California wants to be against nuclear power, I get it. I mean, I don't think we need to build nuclear power plants on fault lines and things like that. But I think nuclear globally is one of the great weapons in the fight against climate change. Having said that, after Fukushima, I'm a realist, I'm a business guy. You know, nuclear is dead in this country. It's dead in Japan. It's dead in France. And those are the three main uh, uh, So. Maybe it comes back, but it's not a tool in the tool chest uh, for this country at this point because it would, it would take a government involvement that you'll get neither from the Democrats, who at best are lukewarm on nuclear, and the Republicans who don't believe that the government should ever get involved in the private sector. And so, uh, so I, I think that nuclear is not going to happen in this country you know, for the rest of my business life. 
Next question. Welcome to Climate One. So each of you, how do we make conservation of water or energy or food sexy for the American public? Adam Lauer, you're our sexy guy up here. Wow. So, <laughs> uh, so we got to bring sexy back is yeah, what you're you know, That's right. We, it's ratings week here yeah. at Climate One. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, mean, <laughs> I don't have to answer that question. <laughs> I'll give a general answer, which is that um, that – I think what you, what we're talking about here is that we've got to make it appealing for reasons other than just its quality as a as a sustainable solution. And, and methods done that in the soap business. Uh, but your question is right in that it implies you can do it anywhere. So whether that's conservation of a uh, of an area of land or of a of an endangered species or of water, whatever it might be, um, the answer lies in what that thing that you're trying to conserve in, in your question um, provides us other than just why we should save it just because it needs saving. Um, and, you know, for issues of water, that could be all the ways that we benefit from that. You know, there's in, in traditional conservation, there's tons of reasons that people are learning about, about how um, the, the, human connection with nature and how that adds quality to our lives and things like that. Uh, I think the secrets lie in those niches rather than trying to do what the environmental industry has done so unsuccessfully for decades, which is to convince people uh, that, that uh, we need to do the green thing uh, for sustainability reasons. Anyone else on that conservation? Katie yeah, um, I mean, there's a lot of uh, tech startups in the Bay Area and in the U.S. that are trying to create new ways and services to make energy efficiency and different types of conservation sexy, but it's a really difficult problem. Um, you know, there's, we were talking about Google by Nest earlier this year and, you know, Nest made a sexy thermostat. So that's one example. And I think if you're looking at from that perspective, it's um, companies and entrepreneurs looking at ways to design, intelligently design systems and products um, in a, an emotionally well-designed way to make these things sexy and make the brands um, interesting. So I'm not sure we've really hit on it other than maybe the Nest thermostat or the um, Tesla electric car, but and that's not really conservation. But, um, but I think that there are companies that are trying this, and I think that um, more will emerge successfully. We're going to uh, go to the very end here, but David Crane, most electric utilities don't want their customers to save because they'll make less money. At least some of them, right? So quickly on that, is there a financial disincentive for conservation in the electrical system? I, mean, yes. I, I just I think conservation is great, but I don't think we can conserve our way out of this problem when we're talking about 80% reduction in carbon by 2050. And we have a, a whole society, a generation that – I mean, our economy, our whole life is based on consumerism. And maybe this next generation will be the post-consumer society, but we are the consumer society. And – Every business is trying to stimulate demand. Every, you know, if you think of the energy that's going into trying to get you to buy something that you don't need, <laughs> uh, I mean, it, uh, that to me is a very multi-generational challenge is to, is to create a world that's not based on the materialism that our world – because the corporate world is geared up to sell stuff, and it all has a carbon footprint. So, so – Conservation is great, but I, I think it's, it's, you know, there are other, we need nonlinear changes and some other things to, to enable the current lifestyle.
We have to wrap it up there. Our thanks to uh, Arun Majumdar, Professor of Mechanical Engineering at Stanford, Adam Lowry with Method Products, Katie Fehrenbacher, reporter with GigaOM, and David Crane, CEO of NRG Energy. I'm Greg Dalton. You can listen to podcasts of this and other Climate One programs for free in the iTunes store. Thank you to our audience here at the Commonwealth Club and listening on the radio and podcast. Thank you all for coming and listening today. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. Our producer is Jane Ann Chen. Alyssa Kerr is the assistant producer. The audio engineer is Andre Hurd and editor is Annie Chelsea. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. This is Climate One, a conversation about powering America's future.